listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's podcast day. Good to be back with you again this week, and I want to thank every one of you for listening to the podcast. It means a whole lot to me, and I really appreciate every one of you sending me messages every week and letting me know how much the podcast means to you, how it's changed your life. Many people are telling me, you know, I'm hearing things I've never heard before, never heard taught. It's really encouraging my spirit, building my faith, and uh, also I really love to get these messages that I've been getting um, where people are using the podcast As an evangelism tool, I'm getting messages, people saying, you know, I've been sharing it with other people, people that don't go to church, people that don't know God, but maybe have questions, and I've been directing them to your show, and uh, they're really enjoying it. They're getting feedback from their friends that they're really enjoying it, and uh, it's actually opening up a channel for conversation and evangelism uh, with those that are not saved, and that's Amazing. That's exactly what I'm praying that God uses this podcast to do, not just build up believers, but also to be a tool for evangelism. So thank you for doing that. And uh, if you're a veteran listener of the podcast, you already know what to do. Share this on your social media today with somebody. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, put it on your story. Snapchat it to somebody. Put it out on Friendster. Share it with someone on Napster. Whatever you've got to do to get the podcast out there, I really appreciate it and thank you. There's there's some really, really loyal listeners of this show, and uh, it's amazing. Uh, I announced a couple of weeks ago that we had hit 10,000 downloads, um, and it took us, what, probably about two years to get to that place. And uh, after a few weeks, literally, we're already on our way to 15,000 downloads and uh, nearing that mark. So uh, we're picking up momentum even with the podcast. So I want to say thank you to all those that are faithful listeners and that are interacting and stuff. We really appreciate that. Uh, coming up, I think next week, I'm going to be having back a special guest, Carolyn Shuttlesworth, my wife, back with me on the podcast again next week. And uh, we're getting ready to leave town for about a little over a month. Um, but obviously on the road, we keep the podcast coming to you. But it's amazing to see what God's doing all over this nation and other nations. But today I'm going to jump in and give you something that uh, I hear a lot of people asking questions about, a lot of people talking about. Now, obviously, as a worship leader, as one of my uh, roles that I play in the body of Christ, it's something that I think about a lot. And that is, should we sing worship songs with unbiblical lyrics obviously when you ask it like that the answer is no but i want to get down to some of these things and talk about why we should not listen to not just listen to or put it in our spirits but sing these worship songs with unbiblical unscriptural lyrics we need to talk about this because it's become an epidemic in our generation that i mean if you go back years ago when we sang hymns, many, many, many of those hymns were based upon scripture. They were based upon, uh, you know, things that we believe doctrinally as Christians. Um, and as the, uh, demand for worship music as its own industry has gotten larger and larger, the demand for more and more songs is coming out. And I'm not saying that, um, 
you know, that there's that many of the songs we sing are not scriptural. Obviously, there's many good worship songs out there, even these brand new ones. I mean, there's many good ones that are based on scripture um, that are anointed. So I'm not I'm not criticizing the uh, genre as a whole, but there are these few that slip through the cracks. And for some reason, it seems to be these are the ones that churches want to sing the most. I, you know, I, I don't get it. Um, my cousin and I, Jonathan Shuttlesworth, we were talking about this. I mean, for years we've been talking about it and, uh, you may have heard me tell this story, but we would go back and forth on the phone as we were preaching revival meetings. And I'd say to him and he'd say to me, you know, it never fails. We'd get our faith ready. We'd be fasting and praying and preparing ourselves to minister to God's people and, uh, getting ready to go in and hold a healing service or a miracle service or whatever it might be. And, uh, it never failed that somehow, like by demonic word of knowledge, the worship team that night would sing that song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, where the bridge says, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it would like kill the atmosphere, like never failed. It always happened like that. And it was so annoying, like wanted to throw something. Literally, I got to the place where I was so sick of it. I was fed up with hearing that stupid song. And if you really like that song, uh, you know, this may not be the podcast for you. Anyway, (laughs) I was on the front row ready to preach a meeting and same thing. I'd announced a healing service and all of a sudden last song before I take the microphone band starts, worship starts, uh, into that song, blessed be the name of the Lord. And obviously I will admit, you know, the other, the other parts of the song, nothing really wrong with them, except I just, just don't like the song. And I don't think it's that great of a song, but, um, then that stupid bridge, you know, he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away a heart we choose to say. Give me a break. Give me a freaking break. That stupid song again. And, uh, I want to talk about that. I mean, we'll start with that song because that song, it seems like took over all over America, like maybe five, seven years ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more. And it was like, it was like the bane of my existence. It was my arch nemesis song. And uh, so I'm standing on the front row, getting ready to preach this meeting. And they start in on this song. He gives and takes away and they're already into the bridge. I was so mad. I had another message prepared to preach that night. I got so frustrated and angry about that I sat down on the front row took out my notebook and pen and started writing another message at that moment to preach that day and I you know within the time that they finished the song I had completed a a full message with like five points and the message was called he gives and takes away And I got up that day and preached about all of the things God actually gives. What does he give? He gives life. He gives healing. He gives the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He gives financial prosperity. He gives peace. He gives joy. I went and talked about the things he actually gives. Then I talked about the things he takes away. He takes away bondage to sin. He takes away sickness and disease. He takes away poverty and lack. He takes away anxiety and fear and depression. I went through the list. I was so sick of it. Because see, what was happening is, is that people, you know, they sing this song 
from the standpoint, you know, if there's, if, you know, if there's things that are wrong happening in your life, you got to just understand that God's, he knows why he's doing these things to you. You know, if you're going through trials, tribulations and problems and issues, you know, it's, you, you've got to know the reason that it's taking place is because God is sovereign and he's in control. And sometimes he does these things to, you know, maybe he does these things to make you more humble or to be a stronger Christian and believer and blah, 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 blah. And it's a bunch of foolishness. And uh, so I got so sick of it. And, and here's the thing. The reason that this song is written, obviously this song is written from the story of Job. If you've ever studied the story of Job in the Bible, there's a whole book. You can read the whole book. And obviously Job goes through issues, problems, tribulation, trials. And uh, first of all, let's just, let's just talk about this in context. First of all, scholars who study the book of Job, many of them believe that the timeline of the book of Job, when this whole thing is happening, is simultaneously happening when Moses is bringing the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. Many of them believe that this is happening at the same time that God is first giving the law to the children of Israel. So we'd have to stop first and determine like what kind of covenant was Job living living under. We know he had covenant with God, and here's how we know. The Bible says that he would get up and make blood sacrifices for his children. On a daily basis, he would present sacrifices to God. So sacrifice is a sign of covenant. You know, there was no sacrificing to God before covenant. So we know that Job did have some sort of covenant. What was he living in? Was it the Adamic covenant? Was it the Noahic covenant? Well, you know, most scholars believe he wasn't even fully in the Mosaic covenant yet. But let's just stop and say he did not have a new, you know, a new creature, believer, New Testament church covenant with God without question. He was it was very, very old covenant. So to take the story of Job and try to apply it to your life in a New Testament dispensation and generation to say that like your life is, you know, that the struggles you're facing are synonymous with those of Job is one of the most foolish things you can do. The book of Hebrews says that we as believers have a better covenant that's established upon better promises, a better covenant established upon better promises. I mean, Job did not have Christ taking stripes upon his back to purchase his healing. He didn't have that. He did not have Christ shedding his blood for the remission of his sins. He did not have that. He did not have Christ becoming poor so that he could become wealthy. Although even in that covenant, he was the wealthiest man in the East. But think about this. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. He didn't have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that we have today where the Holy Spirit can speak to us and lead us and guide us into all truth and keep us from harm and danger by protection. He didn't have that covenant. So to sit here and compare your life to the life of Job, like you're living under the same covenant and have the same benefits that Job had, that's the first mistake people make. They just think because things are in the Bible that everything that's in the Bible, we should follow. That's Sometimes God puts, God puts things in the Bible to show us what not to do, to show us the wrong way to go. In fact, if you study the story of Job, you know, Job says all these things, you know, he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, he, he's got this negative view of God, like God's putting him through it. God takes 
multiple chapters in the book of Job to allow a man named Elihu to rebuke the fire out of Job for the things that he's saying. Just rebukes the heck out of him. Then when Elihu leaves off, God himself starts to rebuke Job and rebukes the fire out of him further. So that by the end of the story, Job says, I'm sorry, I was speaking about things that I knew not of. I was speaking about things I had no idea about. Basically, Job is saying, I was speaking out of ignorance. I didn't understand the character and nature of God properly, and I should have kept my mouth shut. So when Job's making all those statements you know, about God and what God does and how God interacts with his life, he was making them out the side of his head. He didn't know what he was talking about, and he got rebuked for it. But some, you know, writer of Christian music thought it would be a great idea to take the same content that Job was rebuked for multiple chapters for saying and make a song out of it. Here's a great idea. Let's take all the false ideas and doctrine that Job had about God and write the bridge to a worship song about it so that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians around the world could sing this nonsense and get this idea in their head that God gives and takes away. Sometimes when there's good things in your life, you know, be careful. God's coming. He's going to take some away for his glory. He's coming to destroy your body for his glory. He's coming to wreck your kids for his glory. He's coming to steal your finances and put you through bankruptcy for his glory. I mean, this is one of the most foolish thought processes that we could have as children of God. God's not a child abuser. In fact, the Bible says that in the book of James that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from God above in whom there is no variableness. That word variableness means he doesn't change his mind about how he feels about you. In fact, the New Living says it this way, James 1.17, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our father who created all the lights in the heavens and he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Some translations or manuscripts read, he never changes as a shifting shadow does. So God's the same. He's always good. He loved you back then. He loved him 2000 years ago. He loves us the same. Now good gifts came from him. Then good gifts still come from him now. In fact, if you go to uh, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and you read in chapter seven, very interesting thing here. The Bible says, and I'll read, I'll read you this because uh, it's teaching on prayer. You know, Jesus is teaching on prayer and he's talking about the nature of a loving heavenly father. And this is what he said in verse seven of Matthew seven, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Verse nine, you parents, if your children, get this, this is so important for today. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Verse 10, or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. And verse 11, so important. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, let me just show you something. Jesus is comparing natural parents 
to their heavenly father. And notice here that if it was God's nature and desire to sometimes give us bad things for his glory and purpose, why would Jesus make this analogy? Why would Jesus say, you know, sometimes you children, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, but you give them a stone just to give them more appreciation for the times you give them bread. You know, many times your kids will ask you for a fish, but you trick them and give them a snake so that during those times that they do get fish, they're more thankful. That's how God is. No, he didn't say that. He said, when your parent, when your kids want bread, you give them bread. And when they want fish, you give them fish and you don't trick them and give them stones or snakes. And if you know how to do that as earthly, sinful parents, how much more will your heavenly father, who is perfect, by the way, and omnipotent, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a loving heavenly father. He's not a child abuser. So what happens, okay, getting back to the subject of what we're talking about today, what ends up happening with these kinds of songs is that it puts uh, a thought process into the minds and the spirits of God's children about his nature. And I want you to see this. What you believe about someone will determine how you act around that person and what you expect from that person. Let me say that again because that is so important regarding this music. What you believe about someone will determine how you act and what you expect to receive from that person. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say, for example, you had a uh, uh, a person at work that you worked with and every day when they came into work, you know, they were angry. Maybe not at you, but you could just tell they had anger in their life. Maybe they were angry about life. So when, you know, not even having any interaction with that person or knowing them on a personal level, when you see that person, what you expect from them is anger or an angry disposition. So that, you know, anybody knows this when you see somebody like that or you have a knowing that somebody is like that. You're not going to try to approach them from, I mean, you're going to steer clear of that person because you don't want to be blown up on. You don't want to go over and ask them a question and in their anger, have them freak out on you and treat you horribly. So what do you do? You avoid the person. If you need a favor done for you in the office, that's not the person you're going to choose. You're not going to expect to receive something good from them because your outlook about that person is they're an angry person by nature. So you judge their nature and then it, it, it determines how you act around them and what you expect to receive from them, right? Or let's just say, for example, somebody comes to your job and they're extremely quiet and you don't understand how to really approach them or what, you know, whatever it may be, what to say to them. You know, you don't know where they're at emotionally. So you might be, you know, you, you might be a little bit more cautious when approaching that person because you can't read their nature. So you, you're, you walk on eggshells possibly around them because you don't really know what their nature is and you may not interact with them with somebody that's friendly and outgoing and always looking to interact with you. So you understand that this is a problem because once you paint God with this paintbrush of uh, that he has this nature that uh, sometimes he does these evil things, you know, or bad things for his glory or to uh, refine you as a believer or whatever it might be to make you depend more fully upon him, blah, 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 then we have a, 
uh, a picture of God's nature that is incorrect. It's not even scriptural. As I just read to you from two passages in the New Testament that are telling us about God's nature, these things are not even scriptural. So we, we are implanting. And if you don't think these songs are that important, you don't understand how music works. You don't understand that music literally can change the emotion, atmosphere, nature of a person, literally. I mean, if you don't understand how powerful music is to the psyche, you know, it's it's unbelievable. Why do you think that after psychologists have done all this study, even for businesses, because obviously when people are starting to make money, that's where all the research is going. Why do you think that restaurants, depending on what type of a restaurant they are, choose the kind of music that they play in their restaurant. You know, for example, if you go to a restaurant, like a cheaper restaurant, that's kind of an in and out type of place, you know, they've got the lights up bright and they've got music on that's like, you know, maybe loud. They've got fast pop music going on. Why? They're creating an atmosphere that goes along with their in and out concept. They want people to quickly eat and get out and do their thing. You know, that's the kind of thing that they're promoting in that business. But when you go into a, a nicer restaurant, how do they set up that, you know, that ambient atmosphere where they turn the lights down lower, they have different music on. You're not going to go into like a really nice restaurant and they're going to be like blasting, you know, rock and roll or, you know, blasting pop music over the speakers. They're going to have, you know, that softer, more classy music. Why? They're trying to create an atmosphere and they know that music plays the part to create that atmosphere. And we know that music is something that affects the the psyche. There's music that can that can actually make you sad. There's music that can make you happy. You know, there are songs that when people are depressed, they put on a certain type of music to listen to. They set, they're even setting a further atmosphere for themselves. When people are happy or excited, you know, there's certain music that they play. You know, when even when listen, like you go back into like people that are that are athletes that are playing sports. There are actually songs. People will set up playlists. You know, we used to do this back when we were playing sports. You would create a playlist for yourself that was going to pump you up for the game you were about to play. So you had like a pump up style playlist. So what is that? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not like, you know, soft ballad love songs. Little side note here. I actually did have a guy <laughs> on our basketball team and it was like I'd see him like stalking around the the locker room with his with his headphones on and like like he I, I thought he was like listening to some like hard heavy metal or something and I, I pulled one of his earbuds out one time and he was listening to like R&B ballads. I just like didn't make any sense. But the average person does not do that. What do they have? They have these like pump up playlists with like this hardcore music or whatever. It might be hip hop. It might be heavy metal, depending on what culture you're in. That's getting you ready for the game. It's music that pumps you up and gets you ready to go. See, music has an effect on the psyche. No question about it. And if you don't think you if you add in the spiritual side of things that that doesn't affect people, you know, God gave us worship and praise uh, to lift him up, you know, our worship and our praise is for God. Now, I want you to think about this concept for a minute. If we're adding the spiritual element into this at the same time, and we understand that worship and praise is not for us necessarily, it's for God, then what happens? Can you imagine? I wrote this in my book, Unhang Your Harp. By the way, if you don't have a copy of that, you need to grab it to go along with this podcast, Unhang Your Harp, How Praise opens the door to every blessing that God set aside for your life. Uh, you can get it on our website, miracleword.com. Uh, if you want to go directly to the store, shop 
www.miracleword.com. Grab a copy for you and somebody will be blessed, be a blessing to you. But I wrote in there, imagine if you were going to sing about someone, something that was absolutely untrue about them. I mean, let alone just say it to them. Imagine if you wrote songs about someone that was completely false. And it was not only false, it was attacking their character. You know, imagine if I wrote, you know, I wrote a song for my wife on our anniversary. And I wrote this song about her character and nature. And I was like, oh, Carolyn, everyone knows you tell lies. You've told lies for years. Everyone knows you're a liar. Everyone knows you're a liar. I mean, literally, how long do you think she's going to sit there and listen to that song that I've written about her that completely slams her character and is absolutely untrue? She's not going to sit around for that and listen to that. Imagine how God feels when we go into church and we begin to sing songs about his nature and his character that are absolutely untrue. People getting up and saying things about him that is completely false and absolutely ridiculous that slanders his character that other people in the Bible who said the same things got rebuked for saying, but no, we should sing it unto God. He gives and takes away. You know, many times we don't know why we're going through these things, but it's because God, God. It's, it's stupid. It's absolutely stupid. And we have these things in our churches. That's why we have to be. We've got to be completely discerning when it comes to what we sing. It's got to line up with the word of God. It has got to line up with the mighty word of God because God only honors his word. He only honors the doctrine of his word. He doesn't get on our opinions. He doesn't get on our feelings and emotions. He backs up his word, and that is it. So our worship songs, our praise songs, need to be filled with the word of God without question. They've got to be filled with the mighty word of God. In fact, uh, there's a song that's not, you know, not even necessarily a bad song, Uh, As far as it's not slandering God or anything, it was kind of a song of devotion. I was in Bible school, and uh, some of you that are listening to this, you may even remember this worship song. Um, I was in Bible school, and Brother Kenneth Hagin was getting ready to preach. This was during Winter Bible Seminar in February. I believe this was 2002. And uh, the the Rhema singers and band got up to sing and they started singing that worship song, which is really a song of devotion. And if you remember the song, it just says, um, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I, I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, I, f- I forget the words, every moment I'm awake, have your way in me or something. So literally just a song of devotion. Brother Hagin gets up, takes the microphone of course, you know, he's not a harsh person, but just very gently gives a rebuke. But I mean, it felt like the weight of the world, you know, on his rebuke fell down upon them. And he rebuked that song. And he said, scripturally, it's untrue. He said, for example, he said, you're singing, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. He said, you can't do that. He said, you can't give God something that's not yours to give him. He said, the Bible says you're not your own but you've been bought with a price. So you don't own yourself. God owns you because he bought you with the blood of Jesus. So he sat there and brought that out. Your body's not yours to give God. Your soul, your heart are not yours to give God. He purchased them. When you got saved, 
It's because he purchased you with his own precious blood. So, I mean, I don't think that that what they were singing was necessarily harmful other than it put them into the place where, you know, we, we have this mentality that we're in control of us, that we belong to ourselves. Whereas Paul taught that he was a slave of Christ, that he was a bond servant of Christ, meaning Christ owned Paul. In fact, Galatians chapter two and verse 20, uh, Paul said, uh, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives within me and the life that I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul had an understanding that he didn't belong to himself anymore. Christ bought him and he was Christ's slave, meaning that he didn't get to just choose what he did. He did what Christ told him to do. Christ was a slave unto his father, God. Do you ever remember Jesus saying in the New Testament, I don't speak what I want to say. I don't speak of my own accord. I can only say what I hear the father saying. I can only do what I see my father doing. So Christ couldn't even do whatever he wanted. He was tied to the will of his heavenly father. And so these things are important because what we believe determines the way we live. Think about that. What we believe determines the way we live. And our choices and our actions are all backed and predicated upon what we believe in our hearts. I'll finish with this. You know, recently, and I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, um, I'm recording it uh, on July 24th, 2018. So I don't know when you're catching this. It might be years later. But at, at this point in time, there's a song that's extremely popular uh, in Christianity. It's kind of swept over the country uh, pretty quickly within the last year, year and a half. It's this song, Reckless Love. I want to talk about Reckless Love to finish the broadcast because it's a point of contention. I've had many people, not a few, I've had a bunch of people ask me what I think of the song, what I lead the song in service, should they lead the song in their church, um, you know, what do I think, you know, all, all this. And I want to make a couple of statements about this song, Reckless Love. Um, first, I want to say this. I don't want to, you know, I'm not vilifying the song. Um, I'm not vilifying the writer, Corey. You know, I'm, I'm not vilifying him. I've not actually taken the time to, uh, or even search the internet, to, to sit down and listen to what he meant by the term reckless love. Um, I don't, I don't know. Necessary, so I can't speak on on his behalf or what he meant by it when he wrote the song or what he felt when he was writing it. But I'm going to make some commentary on it uh, scripturally. Uh, I, and the other thing is, I don't want to vilify the song necessarily because I've been in a lot of services, and others may not have seen this, but I've personally experienced it. I've been in in, in quite a few services now where the song was being done, and it actually did minister to people. And and to be honest with you, I did feel an anointing when the song was was being done. And I know not everybody may agree with me on that point, but I've been in the services where it's been done, seen people being ministered to and felt the anointing as it was being done. So, you know, God, well, let me just go forward. I'll, I'll say this. Okay, so the song Reckless Love, it has a lot of things in it that are correct. You know, there's a lot of things doctrinally. If you look through the song, in fact, as we're looking at it, let me just pull the lyrics up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do these lyrics for you because... I don't disagree with the majority of the song. You know, I've I've listened to it. Uh, I've never led it in a service. 
Um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But, you know, go through the verses. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You've been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so, so kind to me. I got no problem with that verse. It's all scriptural. Uh, and then, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights long time. Let me go further to the second verse. When I was your foe, your love fought for me. That's true. That is scripturally true. Before you were saved, before you were even born, God sent Jesus to the world uh, to fight and to purchase and to defeat the power of sin. So all that's true. You've been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. That's all true. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Uh, let's get into the, uh, I guess what this would be considered the course. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Let's just break that down. Number one, uh, the love of God is overwhelming. Number two, it is never-ending. You know, Paul taught that. It's never-ending. But now we get into the the title of the song, Reckless Love of God. The Reckless Love of God. I have not, as I said, heard what he had to say, but let me just make a couple of statements here about the term reckless love of God. First of all, I want to give Corey the benefit of the doubt and say, if he was writing this from a human perspective, you know, looking at it from our side, which he may be doing, you know, then it looks like God's love is reckless because a human being can't understand, Lord, how are you omniscient? How do you know everything? How do you know that most people who get saved will still fall into sin relatively constantly, which, you know, whether you believe it or not, I mean, that's the case. You know, it just is. I mean, you can't argue against it. It doesn't have to be the case, but it is the case. So how can somebody look from a man, from man's perspective and say, God, you knew ahead of time that even the things that I would do after I got saved wouldn't please you. And you still chose to give Jesus. You knew that, that, Men were unworthy of having Jesus. You knew that your only begotten son, your your precious prize of heaven would be tortured and killed for us who weren't even worthy of that action, but you did it anyway, and that's what grace is. It's, it's God bestowing things upon you that you didn't deserve. He did it himself. It's grace and mercy together, but you still did it, so from a man's perspective, maybe you look at that and say, look, even after I got saved, there's things that I've done. You know, it may seem like God did it not caring. God did it not caring about the outcome, which, by the way, is what reckless means. It's taking an action that uh, without thought about the outcome or without caring about the consequences of the outcome. So maybe from man's perspective, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. We look at that and say he didn't care about, you know, but. Let's think about it scripturally, because if you believe in seed time and harvest and understand the nature of God, then the the giving of Jesus Christ was everything but reckless. It was calculated. It was a seed that God sowed expecting a specific outcome. Think about this. Think about this for a second. The giving of Jesus, who is the eternal seed. He's the incorruptible seed, the word. God gave him with a specific purpose in mind. God was looking for a harvest of souls. God was looking for a harvest of men and women. But the only way to get that harvest was to plant an eternal seed. 
So what did God do? Not recklessly, with a calculated plan, sent Christ for the purpose of dying and being put in the ground so that when he was raised, he was the firstborn of many brethren. The firstborn or the firstfruits of the dead, meaning Christ was not going to be the only person raised to new life. God did that on purpose so that Christ could be the first, but that through him, there could be millions of others who would be raised to new life, who would be uh, made sons of God. The Bible says in the book of John, the gospel of John, chapter one, verse 12, it says to as many as believe on his, on his name, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The New Living says it this way, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That was God's plan from the beginning. It was not done recklessly. It was not done flippantly. God was calculated. He had an eternal plan. He knew what was going to happen from the beginning of time and made a plan to send Christ way ahead of time uh, to be our Savior and our Lord. So there's where I have the problem with the term reckless love is that it's a very shallow view of what God did. And and, and scripturally, biblically, it's an incorrect view. It's not scriptural. It's, It's not scriptural. Uh, the reason I gave him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he's looking from man's perspective and saying from a soulish uh, a place, you know, God looked at us and, you know, but for, for our, from our mind, it's reckless. But let me go on further. Um, not only is it seed time and harvest that you have to understand that God did it and sowed it as a seed expecting a harvest. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So God was looking for people that would become like Christ when they were resurrected from the dead spiritually. And then later at the resurrection, our actual bodies will be resurrected like Christ's was, but let's go into the the bridge. Okay. And we'll talk about this. There's no shadow. You won't light up no mountain. You won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall. You won't kick down lie. You won't tear down coming after me. There's no, okay, and then that's repeated. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't come up, come up, no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, come after me. Let me talk about that for a second because when you sing this bridge, it makes it sound like and you might you might think like, man, you're just being you're being a stickler about this stuff. You're just being real. You're being real particular, being real harsh. No, I think it's important, especially in this current culture of the way people are living for Christ, especially in a hyper grace generation where we're being taught that our actions don't matter because only what Christ did matters, you know, and if you, if you've, I know you've all heard this. And in fact, by the way, if, if you've heard a lot of this kind of teaching and you're, you're kind of confused by, you know, well, what is it? Do my, do I still need to perform uh, responsible actions after I'm saved? And, you know, we hear people say like, well, you're not saved by works. So it's not about what you do. It's about what he did. You know, if you believe that, read the book of James. But I also want to recommend to everyone listening to this podcast a phenomenal book, probably one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years by Dr. Michael Brown that's entitled Hyper Grace. The book is just called Hyper Grace. It's a yellow cover, black writing. Get it on iBooks, Kindle, get the paperback Hyper Grace by Dr. Michael Brown, who dismantles, who like systematically dismantles 
this hyper grace message that is not in any way scriptural. Listen, I'm thankful for grace. I believe in grace. God gave us grace. There's actually ways to get more grace. The Bible says God resists the proud, but gives more grace to the humble. So uh, grace is both merited and unmerited. You know, we couldn't have made God send Jesus. There was nothing any human could do to make God send Jesus. He did that out of his own grace and mercy, his sovereign grace and mercy. He chose to do it. So we couldn't that. So that's called unmerited grace, unmerited. There's nothing we could do to merit that. But after we get saved, there are things we can do to merit more grace. There are two things I can think of off the top of my head. Number one, uh, by living in humility and meekness, the Bible says God will give you more grace for doing that. And then also, uh, 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 Peter wrote, uh, grace and peace be multiplied to you by your knowledge of the word. So by having knowledge of God's word, more grace is afforded to you. So grace is both unmerited and merited, two sides. But hyper grace, where you have this mindset that once you get saved, your actions don't matter anymore and your sin doesn't matter anymore and you know whether you whether or not you obey the word doesn't matter because now Christ's grace and blood have paid for your past present and future sins totally unscriptural and Dr. Michael Brown does a phenomenal job of dismantling this foolish argument that's been harmful it's been completely harmful to this generation i can't tell you how many pastors i've talked to that people have fallen back into sin left the church citing hyper grace which they just believe is true grace, the grace message. It's not. It's hyper grace. It's not scriptural. It's actually demonic. And it was actually dealt with in Bible days. Uh, and, and I know that's kind of a tangent from where we're going, but you need to hear it before I go into this bridge because of the fact when you listen to the lyrics of this bridge of reckless love, it makes it sound like that God just continues and continues and continues and continues to pursue you you know, no matter what you're doing, there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. If that's the truth, then let me ask you a question, okay? Let's go to the scripture real quickly. Let's jump over to Romans chapter one. I wanna read you something that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. I'll make a point about this, by the way, as well. The Bible says this, uh, God has anger at sin. Let's start with verse 18. The Bible says, uh, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. The, uh, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Watch this, verse 24. So... God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. So stop right there and look at Romans 1.24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Where was God on that one? 
How come? He, there, why didn't he climb up that mountain? Why didn't he? Why didn't he kick down that wall? Why didn't he light up that shadow? See, notice that when you start living in a way that puts all the responsibility on God and none of the responsibility on you, Dr. John G. Lake called that a very irresponsible Christianity. In fact, God did all he was going to do when he sent Christ to the earth and Christ was crucified, buried, resurrected and ascended and then sent the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. Once that happened, God did all he was going to do. Then he transferred authority and power to the church, the believers, and gave us the mighty word of God, which is instruction on how to live in power. And anybody who rejects the word of God, there's nothing God can do for them. God can't do anything to bless you, help you, or deliver you if you choose to disobey the word of God. Listen to John 14, 21. You've heard me read it on the podcast before, but I'm going to go to it again. Uh, verse 21 of Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 21. Those who, ex- this is Jesus, by the way, talking. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Notice Christ will not reveal himself to everyone. Notice God does not love everyone the same in this this, uh, scripture here. It's those who accept the commandments of God's word and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, or you could say synonymously, and because they accept my commandments and obey them, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. So that means if Christ is the light of the world, which he is, Christ is the light of the world. So in order to light up any shadows, Christ has to reveal himself as the light of the world to you. So the question is, if you refuse to obey his word, if you refuse to obey his commandments, and he says, if you do that, I will not reveal myself to you, then guess what? There are shadows he's not going to light up. There's walls he's not going to kick down. There's mountains he's not going to climb up because God is not actively pursuing the unbeliever. He's not even actively pursuing. You have to think about this. He gave that job to believers to pursue the unbeliever. That's what the great commission is. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Those that believe and baptize will be saved. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. So God's not just pursuing people that are in the shadows actively. No, he's using the body of Christ with the power of the gospel. And when we do what we're called to do, then we're called to go in there into the darkness and lift up the light of the gospel. See, it's not God who's climbing up mountains and kicking down walls like the Incredible Hulk and lighting up shadow. No, it's not what he does. It's not scriptural. It is not scriptural. And so we need to understand there are things we can sing that will cause us to have wrong ideas about the nature of God. There are things that we can sing that will cause us to take wrong actions in the body of Christ. And, and, and listen, I could go through the scripture. You can go through the New Testament to people who were living in sin. And Paul wrote back to them and said, quit living in sin. And he wrote back, wrote back to some churches and said, if they won't quit living in sin, then judge them within the church. People say, you, know, you don't need to be judging anybody. That's not what Paul taught. Paul taught that if you find a believer who's living in sin within the church and claiming to be a believer, but they won't stop living in sin and they're unrepentant about it, judge them as a sinner 
and kick them out. Disassociate yourself from those kinds of people. Where's grace on that one? Where's this hyper grace on that one? You know, why isn't God kicking down those walls, lighting up those shadows, climbing up those mountains? Because you've got to be obedient to the mighty word of God. You've got to be obedient to the mighty word of God. I'll leave it there. I want you to understand, be discerning about what you're, what you're singing. Be discerning about, see, because the anointing of God comes upon things that are scriptural. God backs up his word. God backs up his word. So, you know, and, and I understand God works with people that are weak in faith or ignorant or haven't been taught. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm not saying he doesn't have mercy and grace. But I'm saying those of us have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to be people who, and it's not like the Holy Spirit doesn't hit you in your in your spirit with a conviction when something's not right. You know, it's like going back to that song when people would get up and sing, you know, he gives and takes away. My spirit would be grieved. I'd feel a, a check in my spirit, uneasiness, even to the first time I heard that. It's like, that's not right. I'm not singing that about my God. In the same way that I won't sing those things about my wife because they're not true, I'm not going to sing it about my God because it's not true. So we've got to be discerning about what's right and what's wrong. Let me pray for every one of you today that are listening to the broadcast. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a love for your word and a discernment for the things that we're seeing in life that we could be uh, powerful in the kingdom of God by adhering to the mighty word of God. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that you sharpen our spirits like never before, that we might be very impactful in your kingdom. Use us like you've never used us. Open doors for us in Jesus' name. Listen, if you guys have questions or comments about today's podcast, I want you to send me a message. You can uh, you can DM me on Instagram. Uh, my name is at Ted Shuttlesworth. Uh, and give me a follow if you're not following already. Send me a message on Twitter. My name on there is T Shuttlesworth. T Shuttlesworth. You can send me a message on there. I'll be quick to get back to you. For those of you that are still using Facebook to get in touch with people, send me a message on there and I'm happy to answer your questions. I love you guys. Don't forget until next week, goodness and mercy is following you for the rest of your life. Talk to you next week. We would love for you to join us in a live service. To find out when Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. will be near you, please visit our website at www.miracleword.com. 